I'm Dr. Sharon Blackie, and I'd like to welcome you to my podcast, This Mythic Life. Like all of my work, this podcast is drawn from ancient but still bubbling wellsprings, from the old forgotten pre-Christian mythologies and philosophies of the West. These traditions from the magical stories of Celtic Ireland to the soul-centered myth-tellings of Plato in ancient Greece are rich, complex, and beautiful. They offer up a world in which everything is not only alive, but has purpose and intentionality of its own. I believe that it's time to reclaim those old indigenous ways of being in the world and bring them back out into the world where they belong. So founded in authentic scholarship, as well as committed embodied practice in the mythopoetic and creative arts, my work on the mythic imagination is above all about finding our way back into the mystic, about delving into the mysteries of wild psyche and finding a deep embodied sense of belongingness to this beautiful animate earth. In this podcast, I offer you conversations with people who can sprinkle a few breadcrumbs to help us find our way back home through this dark forest of our forgetting. And if you enjoy it, you might also enjoy my monthly membership program, which is also called This Mythic Life, and which includes a weekly subscriber-only podcast in which I focus in on a favorite myth or fairy tale and discuss the ways in which its themes and archetypes cast light on the issues we face in our lives in these challenging times. You'll find details at www.sharonblackie.net forward slash membership. So I'm here today with Dr. Michael Newton, who is talking to me from North Carolina in America. And Michael is a very well-known scholar of Scottish Gaelic and one of the sources that I quote intensively and that I recommend people read in my own courses on Celtic studies. Michael, as far as I'm aware, you spent about seven years living in Scotland in the 90s and you had a PhD in Celtic studies around about 1998 from the University of, of Edinburgh. And Michael also has written a number of academic articles and popular articles, as well as a couple of really interesting and important books on Gaelic culture. And in case I forget to mention it later on, the book that I always really recommend that you wrote, Michael, is Warriors of the Word, which is to me an absolutely unique volume that brings together so much information about Scottish Gaelic culture, which otherwise is scattered uh, and which would be very, very difficult for people to piece together. And from that, you've created a really interesting context for Scottish Gaelic cosmology, tradition, culture, down all of the ages. So just to say thank you so much for that book. It's been really very important for me. Thank you, Sharon. And I'm very happy to say that uh, the publishers in Edinburgh, Beerling, have put, up, uh, put out a new edition of it. So it is available both as paperback and ebook for those who are interested. Great. And I'm sure we'll talk as we go on about some of the ideas that you've written about in that book. So we'll come back to it, I'm sure, as, as, uh, as, as our conversation progresses. But I guess we have lots of things in common, lots of ideas in common, lots of ways of approaching this work in common. And I'm sure we'll have lots and lots to talk about. But I guess I'd like to start at the, the very basic level in terms of thinking about what your own uh, Gallic roots are you're in Celtic roots if it if it's broader than the, the Gallic world and and what really brought you to this work and when and why? Well, I'll I'll try to make it short because I don't want to bore people with my own personal life. But um, like most Americans, I, I'd say I'm you know I'm kind of a mutt. I'm a Heinz fifty seven mixture of a lot of different things. Uh, but I, growing up, I was made aware of. My Irish uh, ancestry, my mother's mother's family, had had Welsh uh, and Irish and English origins, um, but my grandmother mother was always keen to bring up her Irish background. And from what I can tell, this was family that left during the time of uh, of the famine. Moran or uh, Moran Moran was their their surname. I don't know much about my father's side, but uh, I certainly know on my, my mother's side, there's a, there's a fair amount of that in the background. But almost, well, my two grandparents on my father's side, I didn't really know. Uh, my, on my mother's side, they were both orphaned when they were young. And so in a very literal sense, there's great discontinuity in my family and, and literal orphanage. 
And that to me was a metaphor for just kind of the, the orphanage that we have culturally speaking in whiteness uh, growing up. I, I've, I felt a, a really deep lack of rootedness in anything that was kind of rooted in place and gave a sense of nourishment spiritually that that, that, that by default was not there and I had to go out and seek it actively and consciously. And and it, it's interesting though that you you ended up uh, focusing on Scottish Gaelic. Is that in your ancestry too, or was that just a happenstance? Uh, well, it is in my ancestry. It's not exactly why it happened. Um, so shortly, well, toward the end of my time in high school, uh, I was always a big literature fan, and I and I discovered you know Celtic literature, and then that was an era when Celtic music, you know, in in parentheses or quotes was becoming popular. And so at about the same time, I was starting to listen to the popular forms of those things, like, you know, groups like Capricayli and Clannad and, and those folks. So from those two angles, I was getting drawn in. And immediately after finishing my, my bachelor's degree, I went on a trip to Scotland and Ireland and Wales and Brittany, which was my first real contact with, with the living places and cultures and people, and just found myself obsessed and unable to really focus on anything else. And um, I, another, so I do actually have Scottish uh, ancestry on my grandmother's side. Again, uh, the Robertsons of Struan are part of my background. But I mean, that all that was very, very vague when I was growing up. It's not like I had any any specific you know ideas or information about who these folks were and why they were different or, or anything it was very very vague um, it was more something that i discovered and explored uh, on my own and so why why really i guess i mean you've talked clearly about a, a lack in north american culture today and of course that's true in other places in the world that have had that kind of colonization in australia you find it in parts of africa you find it with white people going in there and um, finding themselves immersed in a native culture which is very very much attached to place so clearly there is that sense of, of an ancestral sense of belonging which i guess you're trying to uncover but why was that really so important to you to pick up on those roots what were you looking for at the time well i had both things that i was concerned about and things that i just found attractive um as i as i kind of mentioned i i I'm a big literature fan and I love reading literature and I love the music and I love dancing. And those are all things that, that I enjoyed that gave me kind of portals or entryways, uh, gateways into forms of culture that I found very appealing uh, in the Gallic world. And then at the same time, so this is in the, let's see, this is in the late eighties. Um, I was you know, in, in college, very, very aware of the environmental movement and ecological issues. And so I was very interested in the ways in which modernity, Anglo-modernity has become alienated from, from land and from place. And to ask why that happened and how that happened and what alternatives there were or there are. And, uh, and about at that same time, I was also reading some, some kind of countercultural radical critiques of modernity uh, books such as, uh, let's see, Jerry Mander's book, what is it called? In Absence of the Sacred, and Lewis Mumford's books about the rise of tech, technocratic civilization and so on. And so I became very interested in that. And when I did my PhD in Edinburgh, I, I know I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but I knew that that was the focus that I wanted to have. And I focused on, initially I wanted to look at just general issues about landscape and attachment to place and expression of belonging but there were no obvious models to do that. So I kept collecting material, but I actually just focus on trees and the image of the tree. So these are both kind of interests and passions and concerns that I found many facets of in the Gallic world and was able to, to engage in, you know, a number of realms that I've always found very compelling as a human uh, who I think these are kind of universal needs, but they're very poorly met in what I call techno-consumer society. 
Yeah, and I think one of the reasons why I've always thought that your work is so important is that it, it's, it's the Scottish Gaelic uh, tradition is often overshadowed, isn't it? Um, both in a scholarly sense and also out there in the popular so-called Celtic culture by Irish, in the sense that there are so many more texts, so many more ancient texts, so many more texts with um, arguably pre-Christian ideas in them in the Irish tradition than there are in the Scottish Gaelic tradition. And as I said, what, when I was introducing you, what was so fascinating to me when I first read Warriors of the Word, which I, I always think of as your, your biggest book, is that you pulled together those threads of place and belonging and, and landscape in a way that I hadn't seen it ever done before in the Scottish Gaelic culture because of course in in Ireland you know we have it's very apparent we have the Dinshankhas the the law of place you know we have stories of place all of the the gods and goddess uh, the goddesses particularly of the land are tutelary goddesses they're embedded in tribe and place but so much of that has been lost so much of that knowledge has been lost in the in the Gaelic tradition and yet you managed to pull together threads from so many diverse places to create a a case if you like for for place being preeminent in the old tradition? Yes, well, I, I certainly feel that things have, so it's been 20 years since I finished my PhD, and, and I do think that some, some very impressive work has been done and a great deal of development has happened in Gaelic that wasn't there 20 years ago. I, I received really excellent education and training in Edinburgh, which at the time I think was really the best place to go. So what was certainly apparent to me going through that process of training was that there is this big disparity between Ireland and Scotland because part of the whole impetus for Ireland to become independent was this sense that we are distinct, we are different, we have to develop our differentness and and explore our, our Gallic roots and so on. So that was really seminal in the creation of the nation state in Ireland, but in Scotland that because of that the, the being swallowed up by a larger Anglo-centric polity, it just has never been able to take off. And, you know, until recently, I mean, just in the last few years, um, you can see kind of uh, people no longer feeling ashamed of it, uh, embracing it in places where um, you wouldn't expect it in Scotland, and more students entering in schools, and more people studying it at university. And, you know, if you don't have, if you don't invest resources, um, people's understanding does not develop. You, you can't expect it to come out of a, a vacuum. And part of what, I, what I was, I've been trying to do since I was you know, in Scotland as a student is simply to, to apply the same tools that have been so well-developed in Ireland to all of these materials in Scottish Gaelic that are there, but have not had the attention and investment that they deserve. So in a way, I'm just trying to sort of update what's there. And, um, and again, I mean, I had plenty of, of shoulders to stand on, uh, not least being uh, John McInnes, Ian McInnesh. And could you just, can we kind of like divert for a, just a little minute for, for those who are interested in, in the text, you know, in, in what actually exists, and just give us a little bit of a, a very broad overview of what kind of texts are available in Scottish Gaelic, which teach us about what our ancestors might have believed. Right, well, also maybe by coincidence, this is a short little plug for a, an, a, the first comprehensive anthology of Scottish Gaelic literature uh, was just published several weeks ago in late 2019, and it was edited by myself and Professor uh, Wilson McLeod of Edinburgh University. So this is a book that's over 800 pages long. So there is there is a lot of material uh, going back to perhaps the late 6th, early 7th century in Scotland. So we do have a good number of texts. Of course, it's quite small in comparison to Ireland for a number of historical reasons. Um, texts were continuously copied in Ireland uh, in a way that didn't happen in Scotland. And there were more bardic colleges and so on in, in Ireland than there were in Scotland. But in any case, there, there are a good number of texts. But it's really from about the 17th century onward that we start getting large numbers of materials coming from kind of the, the, the folk level of society. And what we see is fairly consistent with what we have uh, in Ireland as well, because this was essentially a cultural region that spanned 
from the south of Ireland through the north, uh, north highlands of, of Scotland. And we see things, you know, for example, the, the, um, the figure of the Cagioch, the um, older ancient female archetype of the land goddess who is associated with, you know, uh, the elements and strong weather, uh, elemental forces, shaping of the landscape. And uh, so one thing that's interesting about this is just the fact that this is clearly not part of Orthodox Christianity mm. that somehow spread during the medieval period from the, from the south of Ireland because her name is Caliac Ver, and there's a place in Ireland called the Bear Peninsula. But as she made her, her way across into Scotland, well, people in Argyllshire, which is the southernmost part of Scotland, closest to Ireland, you know, they remember that Bear is a place. And so her name remains Cadillac Bear, although sometimes it gets reinterpreted because there's an adjective Bear, which means sharp or pointed or witty. But then as you move across the highlands, that her name gets reinterpreted to other things. So it's the same archetype, but it's interpreted slightly differently. So that's one example of uh, the kind of shared Gallic uh, culture, um, worldview, cosmology, which you can find across the Gallic world. But then, of course, um, Anglo-British colonialism uh, creates a wedge between parts of the Gallic world, and then it kind of fragments. Yeah, I'm, you, you made a mistake there in mentioning the Kaliach because she is my passion. Um, so I did my MA dissertation on the Kaliach and um, an eco-psychological uh, eco analysis of her folklore. And so I'm going to divert into that a little bit. I think we're going to have a rather diversionary, <laughs> rather diversionary um, conversation here. But what's always interesting to me about the Kaliach is that she differs in Ireland and Scotland, nevertheless. Yes, absolutely. As you say, there are these themes, you know, she is the, the creator and shaper of the land in both places. Um, but, it, but she also seems to reflect the nature of the land differently, not surprisingly, you know, in, in the Highlands, particularly of Scotland. She is very harsh. She is quite inimical. In, inimical. She's, she's associated with the harsh winter seasons, with storms. She's not particularly a lover of humans. You know, she'll always protect the wild things against them. Whereas in Ireland, actually, she's a little bit softer. Um, you still wouldn't want to mess with her. But, you know, she teaches the people corn and threshing. Her, her animals are cattle rather than the wilder deer. So you see the same facets, but very, very much interpreted, if you like, according to the nature of the land, which I think is wonderful because that really... Um, speaks to to what you talk about in warriors of the word which is the way in which these old deities these old beings these old archetypal characters reflect the relationship of people with the land oh yeah yeah i agree and even in the highlands uh, in scotland there are regional variants of stories about her and the way in which she's portrayed as you say so um it's it's a good reflection about how land and place can uh, create or influence the way that, that these traditions evolve. Yeah, I was always very fascinated by the Kaliak. And in Ireland, of course, as I'm sure you're aware, that, you know, as that old woman character, as that very fierce guardian and protector of the wild things, she doesn't really appear in the um, literary tradition, but she appears very much in the folk tradition you know, just as she does in Scotland. But but what the other thing that is interesting is how she has persevered in spite of all of the efforts of Christianity to overcome her. You know, every part of Ireland has a story about how the Kaliach was killed by this saint or that saint or or other. And yet here she still is living on in the in the in the folk tradition. And and would you say that that's the same in Scotland? Yeah, and I would say that's true of a, of a lot of different traditions. Um, people People, I think, who are not that well acquainted with Gallic lore will often make these big generalizations about Christianity destroying things. But the fact is that as long as Gallic secular culture was resilient and strong, which is into the 18th century, these, the, the forces of the church were able to be resisted. Mm -hmm. And people continued doing what they were doing because the church just was not that well empowered. It's only when secular society itself became under attack by the Anglo-British state, that it became weak enough to succumb 
to these hostile forces, um, both of that state and the church. And you have, a, I know in your course uh, structure, your school, the Hidden Glen, you have a course which is about, an online course which is about these concepts of uh, indigenous Gaelic culture and the lands. Can you say a little bit more about that apart from the Kaliak? What else there is that, that would lead us to believe that this was, this was a culture that was very tied to its place in a deep way? Sure, thanks. Um, yeah, one of the courses that I have, which I call Reclaiming the Roots, is, is a fairly you know, deep, intensive course to help people understand Gallic culture, and this is an intermediary course, or intermediate course, it's not really a beginner course, but uh, for people who really want to spend the time to, to do the reading and come together online and have uh, discussions online about the ways in which Gallic culture reflects its belonging to place and a deep, a deep embedded of a, of a social matrix on the landscape. So, you know, we, we have to kind of first, in the first three weeks of the course, create the container. So culture exists in some kind of container. It doesn't, it's not just like smoke that's floating around or existing in a vacuum. It has to have place and it has to have people. So the first three weeks we focus on those things, you know, who, who are the, the high, Highlanders or Scottish Gales? You know, um, what do we know about the milieu uh, in which oral tradition and, and literature operated? You know, so, so, so we understand, you know, how do they express themselves in poetry and story and, and song and so on. And then we talk about the social structure because you have to kind of treat them as real people who have, you know, real lives. And then the final three weeks of the course, we talk about the spiritual concepts and uh, attachment to land and the way in which these beings uh, inhabit culture and space. So the Kadyoch, of course, is probably the oldest archetype of this nature. And of course, in Ireland, you have uh, a very powerful literary class who is able to create very high-level politicized versions of these archetypes. So that, for example, every one of the five uh, provinces in Ireland has a goddess with a specific name and a spe specific relationship to the ruling dynasties in that area. And then you have the notion of like the, the island of Ireland coming together and then kind of a, a island-wide goddess. So it was a very well articulated um, concept in Irish political, you know, literary tradition uh, you don't really get that to the same extent in Scotland for a number of reasons. One being that the nation of Scotland, of course, was uh, a seed from Argyll that spread out. So it had more of a sense of kind of being uh, geographically uh, not as intact or cohesive as Ireland. And then, of course, over time, not only were there uh, kind of uh, ethnic enclaves of, say, Brythonic people and Anglo-Saxons in what's now Scotland, but also then in the 12th century, you, you get uh, Anglo-Normans taking over uh, parts of the country, especially in, the, in what's now the lowlands, and kind of eating away at that sense of, of geographical uh, integrity, and then anglicizing that part uh, of not only the country, but also the higher level institutions in Scotland. So you don't have the same ability to articulate this very sophisticated literary expression, but what you do get, uh, even to, to living memory, are these female beings that are attached to specific places and to specific families who are the dominant families in the area. So, you know, you, you'll have the gruagach, that's one of them. Gruagach just means long-haired one. So probably originally just very feminine, feminine notions of beings that are tutelary beings specific to homes and, and uh, attached to families. And glastic is a, another expression of this being. Um, there's overlap and some difference, differences in some traditions. And then also some aspects of the she or the fairy lore have a very similar set of, of motifs and themes, as well as the Benia, the washing woman. So we have a bunch of very localized, uh, uh, many variations of the same set of ideas, but they're at the level of the peasantry rather than the elite. 
Yeah, and that's 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 the interesting part of it, isn't it? That um, there was a whole debate in Ireland as a consequence of the differences sometimes between the the characters, the old gods and goddesses who are talked about in the texts, and the ones that have actually persisted in the folk culture, and you know the extent to which um, that reflects um, uh, like a, a, a literary invention as opposed to what people on the ground were actually believing honoring and doing so anyway that's a whole that's a whole other issue and I guess we won't get into that today maybe another time but uh, I, I suppose for me the interesting question about all of this when we're looking at the relationship between um, Scotland Ireland whichever of the Celtic nations we, we want to talk about and the diaspora is why it matters to the diaspora to know all of this stuff and you know um, you clearly are based there in North America, dealing with North Americans on the ground and trying to interest them in this heritage. I find, um, as I've said to you previously, that of the people that do my own online courses and my workshops and retreats, about 80% of them are based uh, in North America. So there is clearly a sense of longing for some kind of ancestral culture that is going on here. But the trick is, isn't it, to find a way to take it back home with them. You know, so people would be interested in their Scottish culture or their Irish culture or their Welsh culture and would come here looking for it. But the trick is to apply it in their place. And how does that work for you? Well, if I can kind of back up a little bit about my own engagement and that which I see um, the participants in my courses bringing with them, um, again, as you say, probably to date, about 75% of the participants I've had in courses are coming from a North American context. And also just to back up on myself, so of course I grew up in the States. I went to Scotland for seven years. I go back regularly and I spent five years in Canada teaching there. And so I've, I've been to these different contexts and they are different contexts. People have different you know, cultures, cultural backgrounds, sets of values and understandings. Um, and one very important thing that's happening globally in the world right now is, is conversations about empire and decolonization. And people in Canada in particular have been engaged in questions about the colonial legacy of the Canadian state and the uh, truth and reconciliation conversation over, over years now. And so more people are, are kind of waking up and realizing, oh gosh, like I am, I am this, this thing that's the product of this imperial enterprise and colonization that, you know, I'm white. And that's kind of left me as a cultural or orphan, just as other people have had their culture kind of erased and homogenized. You know, what does this mean? How can I interact um, sympathetically and sensitively with other people trying to regain their culture and their sense of sovereignty if I don't examine my own ancestral experiences. So it's been very interesting to have students um, or participants, I, I try to call them, because they all have very interesting backgrounds and perspectives and experiences that, that they bring to the courses themselves. And I've had uh, have one in New Zealand as well, um, interacting with the Maori and being supportive of, of their efforts to regain land and, and sovereignty. So uh, for, for me, uh, it's been really rewarding to sort of guide people through those historical experiences to show them that, you know, all people, and this is fairly obvious, but, you know, all humans were originally indigenous. All humans, you know, had a common set of beliefs about these, these uh, connections and belonging to land, about female archetypes that were nourishing and connected them to land, had a sense of the integrity of both of their environment and their identities connected that to that environment. And then of course, this has all been disrupted over uh, the last several thousand years to different degrees in different places. And, um, and I think that from what I hear from the participants that I've had, it's very been very meaningful that meaningful for them and helps them feel more grounded and authentic in being supportive of of indigenous peoples in, in the Americas by understanding how their own ancestors 
were orphaned from their culture and then co-opted into this machine. And as far as like what I feel I'm, I'm helping to participants to regain and, and bring with them is, is that sense of, of home. I have a glimpse of what home means. And, um, you know, if, if they want, if they want to buy, a, you know, a tartan or if they want to buy a flag or, you know, what have you to visualize it, you know, that can be a useful tool. But, um, I try to give them like real access and contact with actual materials really produced uh, by Highlanders in the past, which express the same sense of belonging and attachment and sacredness as they, um, as they see First Nations, uh, Indigenous peoples expressing and wanting to regain. And I think that that's, that's been very comforting uh, and informative for people. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. But, it, but for, for us in this part of the world, it can be confusing to see the way in which the language has become so politicized, uh, clearly for very good reasons. You know, I'm not in any way criticizing it in your part of the world and to try to navigate those thorny issues. So over here, the word indigenous is okay. You know, we can say to ourselves, we have an indigenous British culture, we have an indigenous Irish culture. You know, it comes from this land, it comes from this place, it, it comes from continuous interaction between people and the landscape, which can be traced in the literary and the folk tradition. So yeah, you know, there is a sense of, of being free to call ourselves indigenous to, to these lands. And yet whenever I have used that term in a way that is completely acceptable over here, say online or in social media or whatever, I've instantly found myself under attack from a bunch of I guess, displaced white settlers, mostly in Canada, but to some extent in the North America saying, you can't use that term. And I find that quite shocking. It's like, yes, I can. You know, I'm from here. My people have been here for generations. We still do things that they did 2000 years ago. We've lost a lot of tradition, but a lot we haven't. And so what I'm curious about, I suppose, is the way in which whiteness in Canada, particularly, and perhaps also these days in, in um, America, has become almost opposite to Indigenous, as if white people could never have been Indigenous. And that seems to me potentially a dangerous, a dangerous way of looking at the world, precisely because it makes people feel that they can never belong. Yes, and that's actually a major thrust of another course that I've been teaching online, which I call Radicalizing the Roots. And in that course, you know, we are looking at these issues of coloniality and indigeneity as pertaining to Scottish Gales. So, you know, looking at how, well, just what we've been describing, uh, the ways in which the Anglo-British state, of course, attempted, and this goes back hundreds of years, well before the settlement in Jamestown in, in North America, uh, which they tried to um, destroy uh, political sovereignty of the Gallic world, to uh, co-opt the, the elite leadership of Gales, to bring them into the Anglo-British state, to eradicate the language through the school system, to colonize the highlands, you know, literally with political uh, institutions and little colonies of soldiers and so on. So the same processes uh, have happened to the Gales and, and quite often the British Isles were the experimental laboratory for empire before the same ideologies, the same processes were brought to North America. So um, I, I totally agree that I think it's very unhelpful for, uh, so, so race has obviously been, uh, and racism has been a very powerful tool of empire and colonization, but it's only one tool of many. And I think it's very unhelpful for people to take this one tool, race and racism, and to totalize it as though it was the only thing that separated, you know, the haves from the have-nots. Um, and that it's always been that way, because it's not always been that way. The ideology of race goes back to the late 17th century, and it was applied to Gales and other Celtic peoples as well. It's only in the 20th century that Celtic peoples have become un unambiguously white, and that's really within my own lifetime. So um, to kind of take that notion and, and say that this notion of whiteness, which is a social construct, it's not a biological thing, and it's a specific identity based on an Anglo-Saxon template, 
to say that that applies to everybody because of their genes and that you should be ashamed of it, I think does not provide a path of redemption for, for people for being brought into a system that they did not create themselves. And yet that word, two words, Anglo-Saxon, is in itself pejorative where it doesn't necessarily mean a need to be. Because again, if you look back at the traditional Anglo-Saxon culture before Christianity came in and changed it, it was very, very similar in belief systems and in practices and in pretty much everything to uh, the, the Celtic cultures of Britain, which it came into. Well, again, all people are originally indigenous. Mm. The question is how, you know, the, the elite of groups create these ideologies and institutions and practices to monopolize power. And they quite often do that by creating these stories, these narratives about, you know, being the superior people or the superior mm. culture um, and having the right to impose their power and their culture and their identity and other people. Right. So the whole idea of, say, the Anglo-Saxon race, of course, is, is the co-opting of something by an elite to monopolize power for themselves and create a hegemony. Um, of course, I mean, when we look in the 18th century, in the 19th century, in the 20th century, that Anglo-Saxon uh, concept and label was absolutely being used synonymously with whiteness. Mm. Um, and so in the modern period, I don't have any problems with saying that, you know, that was used as an imperial construct. Uh, but of course, that, that's not to blame the, the Iron Age Anglo-Saxons for this. I mean, there was no way for them, to, we can't blame them for that. Exactly, exactly. What was very interesting uh, to me this past year was running a workshop, a three, four day workshop at um, a wonderful place in Devon in England, Embercombe, with Pat McCabe, also known as Womanstone Shining from the Dene and Lakota traditions over there. And we did a workshop on women, I suppose, uh, women's mythology and traditions in both of our cultures. And it was quite fascinating, I think, to, to both of us, and a bit of an eye-opener, I think I can fairly say to Pat, um, that the to discover all of the ways in which there was such comparison between the two, you know, that where everybody thinks of Native American cultures as living, as valuing the living of in balance and harmony with the land, so too clearly did the Celtic cultures, where women uh, were preeminent and associated with the land and fierce guardians and protectors of the land in our culture, so they are in Native American cultures. So it's very interesting, I think, and you did it also in a different way in Warriors of the Word, to look at what constitutes a kind of indigenous worldview, as would be accepted in the cultures that we, we all agree are indigenous today, but then look back at our own ancestral traditions and say, this is something that we once had. You know, we were, as you say, indigenous uh, at one time, but actually it wasn't quite as long ago as people kind of imagine. And to me, making people aware of that in the really not too distant past gives people a sense of lineage, a sense of belongingness to this earth that otherwise I think is really lacking in the modern age. Yes, I agree. And, and this issue of kind of being a cultural orphan and how whiteness creates this emptiness, um, uh, you know, is important to kind of juxtapose with, with Native Americans, First Nations, as you just mentioned, because what quite often happens is that North Americans feel this emptiness and they want to fill it up with something and they think that they don't have anything to go back to. And so they go to Native American traditions and, you know, quite often, you know, with all with all rightness, you know, Native Americans feel like they're being impinged upon and they quite often say, well, why don't you look at your own ancestry? And I think that's a really important and informed message that, um, mm -hmm. of course, we should be supportive of, of all people, including First Nations, in maintaining uh, their spiritual traditions and their distinct identities. But that doesn't mean that there's not something to find and reclaim and, and strengthen and revitalize uh, in in other ancestral traditions as well, uh, whether it be Irish or Scottish or well or Anglo-Saxon. Yeah, and and to me, it's very important also. And I know we share a love of um, scholarship. It's also very important to me to 
to get it right, you know, to know exactly what it was that our ancestors believed, not to try to reconstruct some past that we can never reconstruct because we'll never know. You know, even in Ireland, the belief systems were not written down by the Christian scribes in the monasteries. They wrote down the poetry and the sagas. They didn't write down what was by then a competing cosmology. So we don't have a very clear idea of what the Celtic religion would have been in these lands, although we, you know, we have lots of very, very good clues. So with that caveat, it's still nevertheless important to me for people to understand what it was our ancestors believed so that we can build on it you know, in a way that's relevant to contemporary life today. And yet it is true and it, it drives me to utter distraction. I don't know about you. And I say this constantly to people when I'm um, trying to justify the ways in which I think scholarship here is important. There is nothing that creates as much nonsense onto the, on the internet as a discussion about Celtic religion and mythology. Yes, and that's, of course, quite, it's, it's been widespread for quite a while, mm. because even 100 years ago, um, there, there was a fascination with exoticness and otherness and, and Celticness. And so you get a lot of projections of people wanting kind of wish fulfillment of wanting to do certain things and people talking about, you know, Celtic this and Celtic that. And it's, it's all very vague. And so, as you say, I mean, I care very much about the truth and, and in rooting these things in actual material. Material, uh, actual things that Gales wrote and spoke and practiced, and, and we have plenty of materials. And of course, very importantly, we have the language. And there's a lot we can say about beliefs and practices by just carefully thinking about words and the way in which these words are used in texts, which is you know one of the things that I've that I've tried to do. Um, so even just looking at the differences that are that are essentially cosmology, just that are embedded in words, can tell us a great deal about Gallic concepts and values and attitudes. And we can contrast those, of course, with modern uh, Anglophone words. And so let's, let's just move on then to the uh, discussion of the language itself and why that is so important. And um, I should say that I only have a smattering of Scottish Gaelic and a smattering of Irish, but I'm married to a man who's made it his life's work over the past, gosh, I don't know, six, six, seven years to learn Scottish Gaelic, two dialects of modern Irish, Middle Irish, Old Irish, and his whole perspective, and, and now is going to learn Welsh. Uh, which is his native tongue, curiously, and and his whole perspective on it is that it 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 almost every language uh, or every dialect offers you a different way of perceiving the world. It's like you're given it's like almost like you're given a a, a different life. You know, you just see the world differently. The world you relate to the world differently. You understand the world differently and your place in it. And is that the way that you see the the beauty of these old languages too? That's definitely the case. I mean, it gives you a gateway into a different community and the way that 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 own community has practiced its way of seeing the world and of being in the world. And um, now I've, you know, I've studied the historical Gallic languages um, going back to, to uh, early, uh, early Gallic. In Ireland, they say, you know, old Irish, but in Scotland, we say old, old Gaelic or Gallic because mm -hmm. It's a shared shared language. So even sure. the terms we use in English tell you where, you know, something about perspective and about bias, uh, because to call it Irish in English is, of course, to identify it with the nation, modern nation state, whereas yeah. to call it Gallic or Gaelic is, of course, that's the term from the language itself, which gives you the perspective of this cultural zone that spans quite a number of different islands. So... Um, Yes, I'll add too that one of another one of my experiences in Gallic community has been my time in Nova Scotia. So I lived there for five years, and again, I go back from time to time, and am in constant contact with folks there. And language, you know, again, it's been one of the things, one of the tools of colonization that people were made to feel ashamed of their language and you know even punished physically for speaking it and this was true in nova scotia as well as, as scotland itself and there's been quite a lot of negative impact psych psychological and social impact of doing that of making people feel stigmatized and it also makes them feel that 
that um, conformity with the Anglo empire was necessary and that they had to impose that on other people. And you can see the damage, the kind of knock on, kick the cat damage that's happened in those, in those ways, both, you know, again, in the British Isles themselves, uh, but also as people have moved out to other colonial settings. So in looking at language, um, of course, you always have the, the, the tension between preserving the language as it was in older times and trying to use it in Anglo-modernity because there's so many aspects of life that didn't exist in the 18th century, uh, but we need to be able to talk about now. So there is that tension, but you know, I just, I really love spending time with the old texts from the 17th and 18th century because it's, it's just such a different, it's a different universe. It's kind of a, a different way of being that I just find very beautiful and very rooted and um, very alive and energetic. And how, how for people who don't speak um, any of these languages and who haven't spent time in the language communities, we have always lived in the Gertachs in Ireland, for example, so we're surrounded by the language on, on a daily basis. What is it specifically that sets it apart for you? Um, well, part of it is the way in which the, those words and concepts are set in specific texts. And so, you know, again, I mean, I've spent a lot of time with, with the song poems and singing them and thinking about the people that they represent and the, and the way of life that they represent. So again, it's like a, a way of life that's very rooted in landscape that is based in particular places, which are, you know, very lovely places. I, I love mountains. I mean, ever since I was a kid, like I just, I've not been attracted to, you know, flat places or even the seaside. Like I just, I love mountains. And so there's something about that mountain life and the deer. My father is a deer hunter and I went deer hunting with him as a kid. Um, that, that's often portrayed in many of the, of the male songs, the, the masculine songs of the tradition. Um, and the energy of the songs and the rhythms of the language itself. Gaelic is, is a very rhythm oriented language where you have long vowels and short vowels. And you also have these epithetic vowels that just kind of happen in between two consonants, like, uh, and this carried, carries on into Scottish English as well. So when they say, you know, I want to see a film, you know, that film, mm. that little epithetic vowel is there. So there's something about kind of just the, the cadences of the language that I find very attractive. And, um, you know, the words that you have in Gaelic that are fairly untranslatable, like, you know, the term duchus being a very good example of this mm. word that means one's ancestral inheritance, which means both place and culture and ancestry. Or this term that I wrote about fairly recently, buai, which is kind of the, the manifestation of the inner power of things, um, which was a term, you know, I was kind of tipped off about it when I was doing my studies in Edinburgh. And I took poetry classes, especially with Ronnie Black, in which we tried to translate materials and you'd say, well, this term buai can't really, there's no good English word for it. It's like magic or virtue or power or victory. Um, so I, it's just, it's hard to explain. I've just spent so much time with these, with these texts and the people who compose them that they're like a different, they're an alternate universe for me that I like spending time in. <laughs> It's interesting, though, uh, two things on language, uh, and I must remember the second one. Um, there does seem to be, nevertheless, a little bit of a tendency these days to be so snobbish, if I can put it that way, and I don't mean that, you know, uh, trying to be contrary, it's just the word that comes to me. The snobbery about indigenous languages, about minority languages, rather, um, if we can call them that, uh, and the richness of them, that is associated with a real detraction of the English language. And I understand, you know, that people can say things like, well, English has become the language of colonization. It's just like, well, it's not its fault. You know, it doesn't make it a bad language. English as a language also has very many beauties and, and the possibility of saying things that can't be said in other languages and, a, you know, the flexibility that is sometimes its downfall as well as its beauty. So I do always find it a little bit distressing that very often, you know, that, that sense of loving a minority language has to go with the trashing of the English language. 
Well, I think in a large degree, this is the result. This is, you know, one of the side effects of colonization is this mindset that you can only have one. You know, mm. you have this hegemony and you, you, it's either one or the other. And I think that it's much more normal throughout human history that we have plurality. So finding ways of coexisting and being having symbiotic relationships and to encourage diversity is a much more decolonial approach, I think. And, you know, I think it's not surprising that people feel very defensive and have a, a, sometimes the need for overcompensation because of the degree to which um, these languages and their associated identities have been attacked and stigmatized. Yeah. Um, yeah. But ultimately, you know, we, we, we need to be open to uh, a, a multiplicity of identities and languages and cultures. And that's the best way for us to coexist and co-evolve, in my opinion. Indeed, I absolutely agree. And and the, the final question, I guess, um, or issue that, that is interesting to me is the extent to which you are so passionate about bringing Scottish Gaelic as a language back to America, um, and particularly your part of North Carolina. And I understand that you have brought your young daughter up to speak both languages, both English and Scottish Gaelic, um, from, a, as, as from being a young child what what are you trying uh, when I say trying to achieve that sounds rather grandiose but what what's your motivation in doing that given that if a language is so fundamentally tied to land and a community inland what purpose are you serving I guess by bringing it back with you to to North Carolina um, yes, yeah, so my, my daughter's name is Roisin, and I, I only speak Gaelic to her. My wife speaks English, and then she's in a Spanish medium school. Yeah, so, cool. <laughs> yeah, so she's, she's seven, and she's, she's trilingual. And, and to me, that's, that's a great gift because that gives her multiple lenses for seeing the world and encourages a sense of openness and an acceptance of diversity, which is fairly rare because... North America, you know, what we have of North America now is the result of, of this colonial project and being dominated, of course, by three major empires, the French, the Spanish, and, and the, the British, Anglo-British. And that, of course, has, has really hampered diversity because people were forced to speak the imperial language and not allowed to speak their own language. And, you know, I have, I have a friend who teaches Cherokee at the university here, that's his background. And, um, you know, so I, I, I'm around people that are trying to revive native languages. And, and again, I feel that saying, you know, well, I, I actively do something other than just reinforce the, the hegemony is helpful. Um, but of course the, the greater, the greater environment, um, is, is difficult to allow that multiplicity because English only has been the mindset for so long. So I think that pushing against that has been, is, is an important statement to, to, to make. Uh, so my, my daughter, you know, again, I, I've been the only person for most of her life in her environment that speaks Gaelic. And it wasn't all that easy for her to switch uh, very much until she started Spanish medium school a year and a half ago. And now, I think that's really helped her a lot just to, to normalize the idea of, of multi, uh, what's the word, polyglot, uh, multilingualism, mm. because she does it all day in school. She goes back and forth between Spanish and English. And now at home, she just very naturally goes between uh, Gaelic and English. And sometimes I, I have a little bit of Spanish that I use with her sometimes. So she's getting a richness of cultural diversity that she would not be getting if we were only in, a, in an English-speaking world. And, um, you know, she was born in Nova Scotia, actually, and we do visit there sometimes. And so I want her to have anchor points in the world that are not just the product of corporate culture and consumerism. Um, I want her to have a sense of affinity for other groups that are not the dominant hegemonic group and uh, one thing that's kind of interesting to me is uh, in her first year in school, in Spanish school, when she was in kindergarten, um, I told her that that Roisin uh, is pretty much exactly the same name as the Spanish Rosita. So in school, she goes by Rosita. She just took <laughs> to that immediately that now she has an identity in a Spanish world, Spanish speaking world. And so, you know, I think 
I think it's a wonderful ability that she has or that she's gaining to be this walker between worlds to see them as as equal places of equal validity. And if we can bring more people up, that's going to create a greater sense of of coexistence and symbiosis, as I as I said earlier. Yeah, that's absolutely wonderful. I, that's just wonderful. Has she has she taken her Gaelic back to Scotland ever? Have you have you well, put her in that we're environment hoping, yet? We're hoping this summer that, that we'll be able to to visit. Uh, we haven't been yet, but this will hopefully be be her first first visit to Scotland this coming summer. And and I'll, I'll just mention really quickly too. We do have a little place for the fairies in our yard where we. Where we uh, where we make offerings of milk and speak to them in Gaelic. So <laughs> it's a little bit like American gods. You reckon they traveled with you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> finally, finally talking of um, such matters. Um, I can't let you get away without saying something about Outlander because every time you mention Scottish Gaelic to an American these days, they want to talk about Outlander. Do you, and I know that you've had some um, advisory capacity on that production. Do you think that was a good thing or a bad thing, all in all, for the language and the culture and perception well, of it? I, I would. It seems to me, and now I've seen the first four, um, four what is it called, seasons of it. And and I've you know I've enjoyed it. I think that it's the best representation of Highlanders to date on the screen. But of course, that's a very low bar. I mean, <laughs> exactly. most representations of, of Scots in general and Highlanders in particular have been extremely cliched and trite. Right. Um, so I think that that trying to make a space to show and hear Gaelic in the show in the first two seasons anyway was was really really helpful to just make people aware that it's not just people with a funny accent speaking in English, but they Highlanders actually have their own language and identity. I think that some of the shortcomings of the show, which perhaps are understandable for an American audience, are that it doesn't really maintain a strong distinction between Highlanders and other Scots. You get this, mm. you know, just a lot of blurring, just just people in kilts. Um, and now they're in North America and you get the impression from the show that there are all these Highlanders that were involved in the regulator movement, you know, to uh, protest against taxes. And that was just not the case. They weren't in the center of North Carolina. They were in the Cape Fear. Uh, they were, they were not involved as regulators. So, you know, I, I, I do get annoyed at some of the historical inaccuracies you know, they're there because of the plot. You need to sort of bring these characters into this compelling story, but it's just not historically accurate. So I get a bit bugged by the things that are that are kind of distorted because I mean, the real history is interesting itself. So why not Ex stick to the, to the real history? Exactly, exactly, uh, exactly. Um, but, you know, it's been great for for Diana Gabaldon to, you know, she, she used a translation of mine in, in her last book and she has promoted the naughty little book of Gaelic, which I've, you know, which I, I wrote a few, put out a few years ago now. Um, so that's been helpful. And I think overall it has boosted awareness, but on the other hand, it is kind of a cult. And, mm. you know, most people are just kind of interested in, you know, these actors and actresses and you know, they're very nice to look at. I enjoy looking at them myself and <laughs> very good actors. And, um, you know, it's a good story, but you know, for me, what I care about is the actual culture and actual history. And I get kind of annoyed when that gets overshadowed with mm. kind of marketing and image and, and cult-like cult activity. Exactly. Exactly. I agree. Well, Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And um, I wonder if you could leave people with some information about where they can find you so your your website for your courses is the hidden glen and the web address is um i think it's hiddenglen.org i'm pretty sure that's what it is <laughs> okay uh, and i've got uh, also a podcast that i've started and and there are facebook groups for all of those things so um it's it's pretty easy to find hiddenglen.org hiddenglen.org and by googling your name along with it they'll certainly end up in in the right place and again for anyone who is interested in a in a deep and thoughtful and scholarly way but also very readable way in scottish gaelic culture then go and immediately run out and buy warriors of the world because it's one of my favorite books of all time so thank well, you for thank that thank you so much good Margaret. Thank you all for listening to This Mythic Life. 
And a reminder that if you enjoyed it, you might also enjoy my monthly membership program, which is also called This Mythic Life, and which includes a weekly subscriber-only podcast in which I focus in on a favourite myth or fairy tale and discuss the ways in which its themes and archetypes have relevance for our lives in these challenging times. You can find details at www.sharonblackie.net forward slash membership. And these public podcasts are developed, produced and brought to you thanks to the generosity of my Patreon supporters. If you're able to support this work, and you can do so from as little as $1 a month, please do head over to patreon.com and search for Sharon Blackie. Or you can find a link on my website's podcast page. So this is me signing off for now. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next time.